We know, O Lord, that your word is true and great and trustworthy. We ask now for the grace we need to understand your word, and I ask, Lord, for the special anointing of your Spirit's power this morning as I seek to explain uh, this passage of Scripture to your people. Grant me grace, O Lord, as your appointed minister for this church, and give my brothers and sisters the wisdom and grace of your Spirit to understand your word plainly and truthfully. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Well, as I told you, I was going to skip a few words from that reading. You probably wondered why I did that. I did it because those words, part of verse 7 and part of verse 8, 1 John chapter 5, are not the Word of God. They are there. But they are not part of the original text. I can say that with absolute certainty. What they assert is true. They're asserting the the reality of the Trinity. The Trinity can easily be proved through the scriptures. Even without this passage. The reason why I ask for your special prayers for this is because I don't... A sermon is not intended to be a theological lecture particularly on textual criticism of the ancient Greek texts. It's not supposed to be that. But this is the one passage, uh, maybe two, but this is certainly the um, only passage uh, in this epistle, and really the, the primary case in the New Testament, where I have to actually go a little bit super technical on you just for a moment so it's not confusing. So just hold on to your hat for a moment. One of the key things we need to do when we're reading a passage of Scripture to interpret it properly is to think consistently, what is the writer's big main purpose? What is he trying to get across? Have you ever listened, I'm sure you have, listened to a a grammar school lecture or a high school lecture or a college lecture, and what the professor was saying, the teacher was saying, made absolutely no sense to you whatsoever. You had no idea what he or she was talking about. I had a number of experiences that with algebra and geometry in high school, where it was, seemed to be a plain day to her and to everybody on planet Earth, but to me, it was a vast mystery. It didn't make much sense to me at all. I'm sure you've had that case. What John is trying to do in this entire letter is to assure the flock of God that Jesus is the Christ. Now, John was writing to a particular group of people. But this is the eternal word of God and the lessons therein are applicable to us as well. They're applicable to anybody, anywhere in the world, at any time who wants to hear the word of God. But it's important for us to understand the original context so that we then can figure out what it means for us. What was going on here is the ancient tactic of Antichrist which John spoke of earlier in the book. He's attacking the person of Jesus Christ. The evil one has two main sources of attack. He attacks the word of God, as God really said, and he attacks the person of Jesus Christ. Because you see, if you get those things wrong, where else can you turn? Have you ever been driving a city and realized you were going down a one way the wrong way? 
I have. It's a little bit of an unnerving experience. At least in a city, usually you can't go more than 35 miles an hour. I can't imagine what it would be like if you got on Highway 79 the wrong way somehow. And we're driving north when everybody else is driving south. That would be a terrifying experience. What would you do? Well, if you're smart, you'd head to the nearest shoulder, pull way off to the side of the road, take a very deep breath, wait for it. The opportune moment and slowly do a turn and get back on the road and then go way over to the slow lane, way over to the right lane and just cruise for the, for the rest of the day because your adrenaline will be sky high. If we get the person of Jesus Christ wrong, there is no off ramp. We cannot get back on the causeway. It's over. If you do not understand who Jesus is, then you cannot trust him for salvation. If you do not trust Jesus for salvation, the jig is up. When you die, the blood does not cover you. And if the blood does not cover you, you pay the penalty for your sins, which is eternal life away from the comfortable presence of God in perdition forever and ever. Amen. There's nothing more important in this world than understanding who Jesus Christ is and resting upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. We may not make Jesus into our own image. Because when we do that, we lose our souls. Have you ever been misinterpreted? Have you ever been misunderstood by somebody that they really just didn't get you? It happens to us. It's just part of life. If you misunderstand me or misinterpret me, there's only so many consequences in the world and vice versa. If you get Jesus wrong, your soul is lost. It really is that simple. And what was going on here at this time when John wrote this letter was there was a vicious early attack by the evil one and his forces upon the person of Jesus Christ. It was John's primary opponent was a fellow named Serinthus. Imagine being named Serinthus, boys. How would you like to be named that? Serinthus. All the types of nicknames that people could give you. Serinthus was a proto-Gnostic. And he had a very diabolical theory. That Jesus was not the eternal son of God. He was just a man. A lot of people say that kind of stuff, don't they? But Serinthus was a philosopher, and he had a very convoluted theory, because Serinthus read his Bible. Now, when Jesus got baptized, do you remember the story? Hopefully. We see the Spirit coming down upon Jesus when he's baptized. And then we hear the voice of the Father coming out. This is my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You remember that passage? We have the three persons of the Trinity there. This is what Serinthus taught, and this is important. That the Holy Spirit went, came down upon Jesus just for his earthly life. And that right before he died, the Spirit departed from Jesus. That's a problem. Because you see, Serinthus didn't teach that it was the Holy Spirit who came down upon Jesus of Nazareth. He taught that it was the Christ 
the eternal Son of God came down upon the man Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, I see your eyes saying, what? Yes, it wasn't the Spirit, even though that's what the text says. Serinthus and his cohorts taught that it was the Christ who descended upon Jesus. But then right as he was being crucified, the Christ left the man Jesus alone and ascended back to the Heavenly Father. Now, at first blush, you may think, well, that's weird, but I don't see what the problem is because Jesus still died. Well, just any man can't die for the sins of the world. It's prophesied that it would be the eternal Son of God. And if the Christ did not die for the sins of his people, then there is no Messiah, because that word Christ means anointed one. The Christ is the one who actually saves the people. Some man hanging on a cross who is not the Christ cannot save anyone, even himself. And these people were confused, because along with this diabolical theory were other theories that what you do with your body doesn't matter because that's why the Christ left Jesus of Nazareth's body because the body is just garbage. All that matters is your spirit. That sounds very pious, doesn't it? It doesn't matter. All all that matters is your heart. Well, that's true to a certain extent, but guess what? God created us with a body and if you haven't noticed, we sin with our bodies. You can't hit people with your spirit. You have to hit them with your hands or your feet or your elbows. You use your body to break God's law. So you see, with Serinthus cute theology, if you were an enlightened person, you could do all kinds of dastardly things, and it was not a problem. Because your spirit wasn't sinning, it's just your body. Now do you see the problem? It's okay if you sleep around. It's no big deal, as long as your heart is true. All right, we have a problem. You you, you beat somebody up? Your spirit didn't do that. Your body did that. It's a problem. It excuses you of your sins. You have an excuse. You don't say, the devil made me do it like Flip Wilson. You say, my body made me do it. It wasn't me, it was my body. My body is just going to die and turn to dust. My spirit is all that matter. When I was beating that man up, my spirit was meditating upon the Lord our God. You could run circles around your mind like that, and that's what people do. And that's what John is fighting. He wants to assure them that Jesus is the Christ. And what Serinthus was doing is he was attacking Jesus' actual identity. Now you're probably wondering, what on earth does that have to do with part of verse 7 and verse 8? I'm going to read the passage with those words in there and judge for yourself whether those words completely throw the text way off, way off, way off the path. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, and not only by water but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. This gloss is called a gloss about the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. 
It is true. God is a trinity of persons. No doubt about it. And what happened is that long ago, when some pious scribe was copying this text, and we didn't have copy machines and spell check and cut and paste, you actually had to write things out letter for letter on calfskin or parchment. When he was reading this, he thought of the Trinity. And he literally wrote it in a margin. He wrote it in a margin. Something wrong with that. You can write stuff in the margins. If I loan you a book, I usually have to tell people, whatever is written in my handwritten notes is not part of the book. And if it's an old book, I'm not responsible for what I wrote in 1988. My views might have changed. Okay? He wrote it on the side. And then somehow it got copied into a manuscript. Now here's where I have to get just a little technical on you. You know your New Testament was written in Greek. If you didn't, you know now. There are two gigantic families of Greek manuscripts. One's called the majority text or the Byzantine text. That means that most of them are the same. Then there's another group called the Alexandrine text, which is a very small group of texts from Egypt. And they're older. The ones in Egypt are older. Because, in case you've been reading the news, the Middle East is very, very dry. But the church in Alexandria wasn't the most orthodox church. And so when people go to translate the Bible into English, they have a decision to make. Do we go with these older texts? Or do we go with the ones that there's just more of them? I personally side with the majority text. It makes more sense to me. Now, what I want to assure you of is this. Those two family trees, you'll hear liberals tell you, you know, in Greek, the Bible's got all kinds of contradictions. There's such a bunch of nonsense. There is not a single, I'm telling you, there's not a single, even minor doctrine of the Christian faith Is it at stake with all this Greek mumbo-jumbo? Nothing. Especially not even the Trinity. See, you have to understand something. When someone tells you, you know, there's thousands of Greek manuscripts, how do you know which one is true? Here's the rules of this game. If there's a word and you put a comma on it, right? A comma. Hotels. It is the hotel's stationery. You would put an apostrophe there and an asterisk to show possession. If you come across two Greek manuscripts and that apostrophe is missing, you have to count that as two. Now it makes sense, but that's, that's what the like 90% of the variants in the Greek text are, their punctuation. Or they left out the word the, which quite frankly doesn't always mean a lot in the Greek. So you hear people say, 